Hello and welcome back to the Scholar on the Belt and Road podcast. I'm your host, Ali Malimov. Our guest today is Dr. Enrico Fardella, a tenured professor at the History Department of Peking University and director of PKU Center for Mediterranean Area Studies, who has just arrived back from Italy, where he met China's President Xi Jinping during his historic visit to Italy. The past week provided lots of talking points on the visit, specifically due to the signage of the MOU that made Italy the first G7 nation to join the Belt and Road Initiative. Italy's Western partners have jumped to criticize Rome, while other countries applauded Italy's foreign policy independence and adherence to national economic development interests. We wanted to dig deeper and understand the roots of what is at stake and why has there been such an overwhelming reaction to this event and what lies in the future of Italy and China, U.S., and European Union relations. The conversation was truly informative, and Enrico sheds light on many events that led the two countries to this occasion, as well as makes it clear what Italy's role is within geopolitical spectrum. If you are following the Belt and Road, this episode is not to be missed. Enjoy the episode. Enrico, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Enrico, you have just returned from Italy where you were part of the welcoming team for Xi Jinping's visit. Tell us about the importance of the visit in China-Italy relations and within the Belt and Road Initiative. Sure. Um, yeah, it was a great visit. Um, of course, it was a great experience. Uh, meeting the president in person is a uh, a great honor after so many years in China it was a dream coming true. Well, the importance is actually self-evident because Italy is the first main, I would say, European country, one of the member of the, the European Union, the founding member of the European Union that uh, joined the initiative by signing the Memorandum of Understanding and is also the only G7 uh, country that um, uh, did so. Actually, this choice was somehow anticipated by the participation of Italian Prime Minister Gentiloni in the first Belt and Road Forum uh, in 2017. So it was in the air. Uh, this is actually a, a very important point we should stress in the sense that... Uh, it wasn't a surprise. It, I mean, I, I would say that maybe the timing is something we should uh, uh, talk about, but not the event per se. So I think it was... Uh, quite evident that uh, Italy was going in that direction, um, and um, and so the, because there is what is not being emphasized in these days is actually the continuity of Italian opening towards China, uh, and there's nothing to do with this government. This government is actually inheriting uh, a policy that has been like you mean the new coalition the new, government, the new government that just won yes, the, the election, right? Yeah, the new government, like. Uh, that is uh, run by so-called populist parties. Uh, he is basically following a traditional line of Italian foreign policy that stretched all the way from 1949, the foundation of PRC, and always tried 
to uh, involve China in the international community. Of course, uh, they, they succeeded, Italy succeeded in 1970, you know, for Cold War restriction. Uh, but then since then, Italy has been very proactive towards China. And no matter which government, if it's center, center right or left or populist, they keep following this traditional line because that is Italian national interest. Oh, that's very interesting. And not a lot of people talk about this. And you mentioned how important this meeting was. At the same time, there was a wave of criticism, specifically from the other G7 members for the Belt and Road and for the MOU that yeah. is, I think it was non-binary, right? Yeah. But it was still signed. Do you think this criticism was fair? Well, criticism is always fair. Uh, if you get criti uh, criticized, it means that you are doing something important, right? Because right. people are noticing you. And so it's good because Italy, I think, that is like moving in a sort of, uh, is being brave. Uh, but this bravery is not just the result of Italian choice. As I said, if you consider this choice as a, Uh, important element, you know, in a continuous evolution of uh, uh, a traditional line of Italian foreign policy, then you uh, will uh, uh, understand that probably the reason why uh, Italian choice is being so overemphasized is because not because Italy changed its foreign policy, but because other countries actually change their position. So somehow Italy is not having an heretical position per se. Italian foreign policy has been uh, continuous and consistent, but other countries' foreign policy change direction. Uh, first and foremost, the U.S., uh, and followed by the main European countries, you know, for legitimate reason, each of them. But Italy didn't do uh, uh, in sudden uh, about the face. This is a very important point to be, uh, to be stressed. Actually, if you look uh, at the history, when... Uh, Italy recognized China in November 1970, uh, eight years before the recognition of the United States. Official recognition, <laughs> yes, right. Yes, exactly. So um, the negotiation between Italy and China uh, for the normalization of diplomatic relations, they start, started at the beginning of 1969. It was a very delicate moment in the Cold War. And so for an Italian government that was allied to the United States you know, within the uh, NATO you know, uh, framework, You know, talking to the Chinese back then, you know, remember, you know, there was like the Vietnam War was still ongoing. So, you know, there was the Chinese and the Americans somehow were, they were like, it was a proxy war. So it was very controversial, even more controversial back then to discuss, you know, and uh, think of a normalization with the, with the Chinese. Consider right. also that at that time, you know, uh, China was not part of the United Nations yet. So, and, and uh, at the United Nations, the dominant position was the American support for Taiwan. So right. Italy, by recognizing China, was weakening, you know, the U.S. allies, first and foremost within the U.N. So, but Italy did it. Mm. And actually, during the negotiation, there was a very interesting meeting when the Secretary of State, Rogers, uh, back then, uh, talked to the, um, the, the foreign, Italian foreign minister who was in charge for, the, um, for negotiation with the Chinese. Uh, and actually, this was up, happened at the 20th anniversary of uh, the, uh, um, the North Atlantic Treaties in 1969. You know, the NATO was founded in 1949. Uh, so it's interesting because, you know, so the, the Rogers told the guy, if you spit us in the eyes, don't call it rain. Right. Uh, uh -huh. And, you know, this didn't even, did it, this, uh, didn't change the direction of Italian foreign policy. But as if, if you see historically, the Italian position changed a bit in order to, you know, to balance out, you know, his traditional Euro-Atlantic, you know, position with the national interest that was Uh, uh, driving Italy uh, towards China. 
This is a similar situation, you know. In the end, so you're comparing the two situations. Yeah, it's a similar situation. So the U.S. in the U.S. of course they they have like legitimate concern for Italian uh, you know position vis-à-vis China, but Italian government, I mean, this choice should is not conceived by Italian government as a disruption of the traditional alliance with the U.S. and European allies, especially within NATO framework. Or you can call it Italy as a pioneer because it was the first one to recognize. China in 1970, and then U.S. followed suit. Do you also suggest that potentially U.S. can also join the Belt and Road? This is this is hard to say. You know, well, first of all, Italy was we can predict, well, of well, course. The, the, Italy was not the first one. The first one was, I mean, there were other countries before Italy. And, um, first and foremost, France in 1964, but. Um, The situation was different because at that time, you know, the relationship with China were instrumental, you know, in the, you know, uh, antagonism between United States and Soviet Union. Right. Uh, so China was a third actor as much as Italy was right. back then in the bipolar framework. Today is a different position because Italy somehow is an inter- intermediate power in between two superpowers. China being now one of these two superpowers. So. The position is slightly different, and that's why, to a certain extent, you know, the signing of the MOU that is being interpreted mostly officially as an economic choice obviously has a symbolic meaning, as I said before, and obviously has a political, you know, dimension. Uh, but this, I don't see this as um, something that is um, substantially uh, uh, conceived as a threat. Uh, to the traditional, you know, Euro-Atlantic, you know, for uh, say alliance uh, of um, uh, of Italy. You know, we should not um, overemphasize the um, the dimension of the Sino-Italian agreement in the sense that, of course, this choice brings in uh, other dimension of conflictuality that are classical, traditional, legitimate, natural uh, within the European Union, for example. Northern European countries, you know, that have been, you know, monopolizing the uh, Europe Far East trade with their port infrastructure, Rotterdam, Hamburg. Of course, they are not uh, very glad to see Mediterranean ports, you know, taking you know, the initiative, you know, and somehow, you know, um, controlling new segment of this fundamental Uh, flux of value that connects Europe uh, with China. First, but Notre Dame is also a part of the Belt and Road. Of course, right? but but yeah, but if you see, if it's you, a competition then. Yeah, but yeah, if you if you see the numbers, you know, this is the reason why now China is. This is the first uh, the reason why China was so much focused on Piraeus, right? And this is the reason why now China is looking at Italy. There is substantial difference between uh, Italy and Piraeus, but in Greece, but we can go back on that. The the main point is that. Talking about natural competition within the European Union. First, port infrastructure, northern countries versus southern European countries. Second um, is also, you know, we, in May we have uh, European elections. So it, Italy is governed by a coalition that is supposed to be deeply anti-European. So countries like France that are showing um, a strong, you know, pro-European stance. Of course, you know, they compete with Italy. Not only industrially there is a traditional competition between the two countries, but I would say that now there is also a political, you know, sort of electoral campaign 
between countries and this somehow benefits the European Union per se because you know the European elections have never been so important so far so paradoxically this conflictuality that is being enhanced by the signing of the MOU with China you know has a positive effect at least in terms of attention you know and uh, of the public opinion towards the Previously neglected public opinion uh, of Europe or public Europe, opinion Europe, of Italy? Europe, Europe, Europe. In, the, in mm-hmm. general, and they say the European election in May are uh, are having um, um, are being uh, very much, uh, you say, emphasized by the the current political situation and internal conflictuality in Europe. Okay, let's ba- backtrack a little bit. How does Italy understand the uh, Belt and Road Initiative? What's next after the signage of the uh, MOU? And what do you think are the specific benefits that Italy can get from this MOU? As I said before, uh, I think that Italy looks at the Belt and Road mostly from an economic perspective. And um, first, uh, if we look at bilateral relations, I mean, namely Italy-China, Italy knows that has... Uh, a natural strategic position that uh, um, as a hub that connects you know uh, the southern shore of the mediterranean with the northern shore namely you know north africa uh, mm-hmm. with the, the continental europe and this is very important for several reasons because you know the belt and road is one of the main dimension of the belt and road at least the most popular one is the infrastructural dimension so if you look, for example, at the ports on the, the, uh, in northern Italy, you know, in the Adriatic Sea, Trieste, and on the other side, in the Tyrrhenium Sea, Genova, uh, both of them are being attentioned by uh, Chinese uh, SOEs you know, for investment of uh, port development. Because these ports, they are first perfectly connected with you know, railways and uh, highways you know, to the, contin- to the uh, core of the European continent. And uh, so Chinese, they have good uh, infrastructure, good connection. They, uh, in terms of uh, trans, uh, um, timing, you know, they save time. The Piraeus has the problem that it's a bit too far, so you have to cross all the, the Balkans, you know, to, uh, to reach, uh, you know, the end point um, of uh, the Belton Road, which is, you know, basically Germany and uh, Central Eastern Europe. Europe. And so, uh, these give like uh, a natural advantage to the Italian ports. So this is the first and the most evident element. Then there is another element that is not being actually, um, say, uh, emphasized, I guess, um, as it should be, which is the trilateral cooperation, so cooperation in third countries. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, you know, the Mediterranean, since the, um, the beginning of the so-called Arab Spring, uh, as became uh, a sort of arc of tension that stretched all the way from Gibraltar, you know, uh, to uh, to the Middle East, and uh, this uh, tension that is like you know political radicalism, religious radicalism, political you know instability, economic dislocation is coupled with has been coupled with the um, um, financial distress of Southern European countries. This connection matters because the Mediterranean works has always worked as a sort of uh, dynamic epicenter, as uh, the philosopher Hegel used to say, of the three continents, you know, Europe, near Middle East and, uh, and, uh, and Africa. And so uh, the, uh, you say the code words of the Belt and Road, namely stability and development, you know, 
development being useful for stabilization, this is something that for Italy is extremely important, especially if you look at it from the, you know, um, the crisis of immigrants, you know, uh, the exodus that Italy has been living in the last few years. And it has been like, is, is the number one point in the agenda of the new government uh, that actually is, um, a, a, has a new proactive policy that is being very much criticized by several uh, angles, but as a matter of fact, is trying to block, you know, the flux of, of immigrants coming from Africa to Italy. Uh, and, but this is a ju just a short-term solution. You know, the demography in Africa is, is booming, and, you know, and so the stability and development of Africa is in the interest of Europe, first and foremost Italy. And so Italy sees the partnership with China in the framework of the Belt and Road as a, as a, uh, uh, say, as a useful tool to address this long-term problem. Right, but um, at the same time, this MOU was non-binary, right? So you can consider it as more of a symbolic document that put Italy in alignment with China's grand vision of Eurasia? Or does the Italian government view it in a different way? Uh, yeah, there is, there, are, there is partial alignment uh, on uh, um, uh, some chapters. Uh, for example, the one I just mentioned is very, extremely important. But actually, if you look at the wording of the MOU, uh, to be honest, uh, it's way more advanced, uh, advanced and way more transparent and um, then um, and i would say to use like a chinese term inclusive right yeah then the previous uh, draft of the mou uh, were so uh, somehow there are two possibilities you know um i think that the idea of the italian government uh, is define one of these two possibility and actually is looking at one of these possibility which means trying to be uh, proactive and instead of you know excluding China, you know, pushing China back or excluding the option of working with China is trying in a contest that is emphasizing containment and conflict with China or at least arm wrestling, you know, or criticism to China is trying to use like a, a smart card of engagement whereas uh, uh, Italy proposed itself as a bridge that is bringing in, you know, the Belt and Road towards Europe but with a code with code words and methodology that are more uh, tuned to the European needs and European wording. For example, if you look at the paper issued by the Commission uh, on March 18, 2019, this year, a few years, a few days ago, it was a paper that is somehow presenting like the new uh, European Union strategy vis-a-vis -vis China. You see that you know the, the media they emphasized. Uh, the fact that the European Union is calling China a syst systemic rival. In fact, Europe... Very similar to the U.S. It's different. You know, the U.S. are using strategic threat. It's uh, much broader. Systemic, actually, the code word systemic rival is connected to the fact that China is pushing forward a revision of global governance that doesn't match with the European Union you know, uh, um, outlook. But uh, in this paper, uh, the systemic rival element come uh, as the last point. Actually, the first point is that the European Union is stressing the fact that China is a strategic partner on several important chapters in, at international level. Environment, for example, is one, right? right. 
there is also the Iranian issue that is a very important element. Right. Yeah. So it's not that all of the sudden the European Union change position on China. Uh, China I mean, there is still like a, uh, you say willingness to you know work with China, engage, you know, engage, right. engage China. But there is, of course, there are some emerging element of criticism. So it's not black and white. And so probably Italy is trying to. Uh, the the political vision is trying to somehow um, um, say uh, dilute you mm-hmm. know the threat you know or the, the fear for a sort of uh, subversion that the better road is supposed to you know bring in for global government governance China threat or exactly, China expansion exactly, exactly, that everybody's exactly. talking and about and is, of. yeah and it's trying to show that there is margin for negotiation you have to consider also that you know we are living we are the better road is entering is a new stage because you know the normalization of chinese economy will not allow you know the china to uh, somehow you know spread investment as they used to do it in the first stage of the better road so the rational the rationalization of foreign investment implies that china in order to guarantee a survival and you know success of the Belt and Road needs to really give more space to other partners. Absolutely. And so somehow the model, for example, of Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is more plural, you know, more multilateral, I guess might emerge as a, you know, uh, a model for the Belt and Road 2.0. And in this case, probably if this is going to happen, it, the Italian choice would be successful. Very interesting. And you mentioned how important uh, this visit was. You also mentioned the particulars of the MOU and the text, the content of it, right? And of course, we understand that behind all of these documents, behind all these visits are people. And uh, we understand that how difficult it is to organize all of these process and not just the from the protocol or from the logistic point of view, uh, but as I mentioned, also the content angle. Talk about the difficulty of negotiations between the two countries. And I dare to say, two ancient civilizations well that's actually a um, fundamental point i think this is actually uh, uh, probably the most uh, important element that should be addressed uh, because sometimes misperception um, uh, uh, degenerates in uh, conflict you know a very important uh, um, political thinker uh, in the italian history machiavelli said Chi poco sa molto sospetta. Who doesn't know much tends to be more suspicious, and this is actually, uh, I think, something that constantly happens. You know, when it comes to China's relation with uh, foreign countries, not just Italy, not just Europe, but in general. And uh, this is, which means that China is actually a very an unavoidable presence nowadays in our everyday life. Absolutely. No matter where you live in the world, you know, you're gonna you know, uh, deal with China consciously or unconsciously by using products, you know, by, you know, doing business, or, uh, you name it. But culturally speaking, China is still very much far. And this is something that as an academic, I, um, I care uh, about and uh, I'm investing basically all my energy, as you know, in trying to create more bridges, in cultural bridges, because this is like, ex- this is extremely important. Actually, the Belt and Road, uh, will succeed if the cultural dimension of the Belton Road will be emphasized. Uh, so the, we have so much to learn from China. You know, China has still a lot of st- stuff to learn from us. 
I think that the Chinese already did a very good job in trying to learn some of the best things that we used to do. But, you know, we should open our mind and also understand that there is um, that the future is syncretic. And if the future is syncretic, you know, we can empower ourselves by learning from the other. And China has a lot of things to teach us uh, or at least to share with us um, in form of uh, being like one of the most incredible civilization in the history of humankind. It's also uh, coming to my attention that for the past uh, 12 years, at least I've been in China, I've only uh, been seeing one of the most active embassies uh, here in Beijing is the Italian embassy, especially on the cultural uh, front. And not only that, on the academic front, and as you mentioned, you are a professor, a professor of history. Not only you're a historian, you're also a strategist. It seems to me that there, uh, that there are a couple of people uh, that has been uh, involved in uh, uh, drafting the China policy for the for the Italian government, and most of them, are one way or another, have been here uh, for the past 12 years. Uh, talk about the behind the scenes. How difficult was it to organize uh, such an event and such an agreement to be actually uh, shaped and um, uh, and and signed uh, during the visit? Well. Um... On my side, I was not, uh, of course, um, not a public official, so I was not uh, involved directly in the uh, organization because this was something that was being taken care of by the uh, Italian embassy here in Beijing and the Chinese embassy in Rome and the two offices of the president, so Xi Jinping office and uh, uh, President Mattarella's office. I was, of course, I mean, I did what I could to contribute, you know, provide ideas, uh, and especially for the Sicilian section, being Sicilian, you know, that was something that I was particularly, as I said, proud of uh, being involved with. Uh, and but, presidency visit uh, yeah, Palermo, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a private visit, though. It was not two different kind of visits. In Rome, it was a state visit, right. one, uh, one and a half day, and one day in Sicily as, uh, for a private visit in order to pay homage to the uh, to President Mattarella because you know uh, President Mattarella is from my hometown uh, and Xi Jin- and he visited Xi Jinping hometown when he came to China uh, the first time so it was a kind of uh, kind gesture from President Xi you know to reciprocate and visit Palermo I would say that there is actually a very strong uh, you say uh, Sicilian component in the government that uh, is being quite um, uh, you say. Uh, in favor of um, uh, a proactive and uh, um, and um, and closer relationship with China. So, but if you want to talk about you know culturally uh, and what how you know this cause of sort of um, cultural difference they translate somehow in uh, misunderstanding in the organization. I mean there are a multitude of example you know and uh, the. Sometimes, you know, uh, I, I would say that, you know, th- that in, the, in these specific relations, you know, I think that both Italian and Chinese, they tend to be flexible in the sense that, uh, I mean, there is a level of frustration during the organization, but in the end, both of them, they understand that, you know, perfection cannot be, you know, uh, it's not, uh, it's, j- it's just a model, you know, it cannot be the practice. So right. uh, both of them are very flexible. I would say that, you know, flexibility is something that, uh, make them closer, but at the same time, sometimes you know, dilute the possibility to achieve to you know, to speed up uh, an agreement and make it uh, longer than it should be. 
well, truly a historic event, and I congratulate you. And knowing you for many years, and that you've been working and uh, living in China uh, for more than a decade, tell us uh, your China story. How did you end up here? I I first arrived in Beijing on uh, uh, February eighth, uh, two thousand and five. It was New Year's Eve, and I didn't know it. Uh, <laughs> just to tell you how few I knew about China back then. Uh, yeah, well, our, uh, because I uh, started my PhD in uh, Florence University, and uh, my PhD was, uh, uh, um, I mean, my research was uh, uh, U.S.-China policy during the Carter administration, mostly focused on speaking of Brzezinski, China policy. Uh, Brzezinski was the national security advisor of Jimmy Carter. Right. So I... Um, after the first year of research, I realized that, you know, I had to be in China, you know, to have like the China component. And uh, I, we had no connection whatsoever with Peck University, uh, but I discovered there was like uh, an agreement, a news agreement signed back in the 90s and uh, never used before. And so I started writing on behalf of my university uh, to, the, to Peck University almost illegally, I would say, just to you know check the ground and see if I could still use that agreement. And so after three months, three months of emails with no response, but being very stubborn, eventually they answer and they say that I could, uh, I could come. So then I went to the Office of International Relations of my university and I told them, you see, you know, it's doable. Then, uh, and I flew and I jumped into Hahutong, uh, close to Gulo Dajie, uh, and I have no clue what was going on, I thought that Beijing was a very quiet city, no pollution, no traffic, you know, and uh, everything started. How wrong you were. <laughs> and everything started by then. So then I, I started start studying Chinese, a first semester, and, um, and then uh, they asked me, uh, I started giving, knocking at the door of professor at the history department, and uh, then eventually they invited me for a seminar. They liked the topic, they liked the seminar, and, uh, and they asked me to stay one more semester. And that semester, I just devoted myself to research and changed my life. So the last day before coming back to Italy, you know, to, you know, defend my dissertation, it was almost done by then. Uh, the director of my department asked me in Chinese, I think it was one of the few, the first phrases that actually understood in Chinese, if I want to go back to Peking University. And being the first Westerner to join the postdoc program of Peking University that was being, you know, internationalized. So you could just write your dissertation, your Baogao in, in, in English. Right. And that's what happened. So I did my postdoc. After my postdoc, uh, I, uh, because of my publication and, uh, and thanks to the fact that the Brzezinski saw some of my publications, so I started, you know, getting, working with Brzezinski and going to the U.S., and uh, and he wrote me the recommendation letter, uh, so I succeeded in entering uh, in a tenure track program at Peg University. Uh, it lasted six years, and after six years, I applied for tenure, and uh, I got it in July 2016. And uh, here I am now. I'm associate professor at Peg University, tenured associate professor, and uh, I think I'm the only one. Uh, in most probably, yeah. yeah. Well, in so in uh, in in my field for sure. Uh, I don't know, maybe right. hard science. There is someone else, but. Uh, Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. in finance as well, right? Now, several years ago, you've started China Mediterranean program. Can you yeah. describe uh, to our listeners of its mission, what, what its goals are? Well, first of all, of course, I mean, I'm from Sicily, right? So I look at, you, at Europe from the south, 
And I think the South is very important. I mean, especially in China, you know, the South-South cooperation is a very important element for China. It's always been. And so I think that there was a South missing in China, which was the Mediterranean perspective. And uh, I conceive myself, I think, first and foremost, in my identity uh, as a Sicilian, uh, a Mediterranean, an Italian and a European. So I thought that, you know, there was a part of my identity missing in the way how China was looking at my country and this position. And uh, this somehow weak, weakened, you know, the capacity of Chinese to connect, you know, the two shores. So Xia Beifei and uh, Naho, so Southern Europe and North Africa and Middle East, and the dynamic, the holistic dynamic of the Mediterranean that I mentioned before. So I decided to uh, take like the symbol of Sicily, which is uh, uh, it's called Triskelion, is right. like, uh, and uh, I brought it to Beijing, and uh, and uh, I create a logo after it, uh, which is the logo of the Center for Mediterranean Area Studies, which is uh, the first center focused on the Mediterranean uh, ever open in China. Uh, and since then, we started looking at. Uh, in cooperation with Turin University, we start looking at uh, the relationship between China uh, and the Mediterranean from 2001 uh, until today. And I set up this platform called ChinaMed.it. Uh, it is growing very fast and is focusing basically on the analysis of uh, this very important relationship. Uh, we publish a newsletter on the basis of uh, analysis uh, uh, on uh, Chinese uh, sources, media and academic uh, uh, focused on the Mediterranean region and all the languages in the Mediterranean, I mean I say greater Mediterranean region, so from Farsi to Arabic to Turkish, Greek uh, Italian, French, uh, Spanish so everything is being translated and analyzed and we produce like a, a summary an introduction on what China is thinking of the Mediterranean what, what China is talking about in relation to the Mediterranean each month and vice versa what the Mediterranean region is uh, discussing about China in that specific uh, moment. You also have exchange programs as I understand. Yeah, yeah, we Talk have a, about those. Yeah, we have a we have a business program uh, it's called China Med business program uh, it's based at Peggy University in cooperation with Guoguan uh, and uh, stretch in uh, five weeks uh, in, in cooperation with Guoguan the School of Economics of Peggy University and uh, HSBC, uh, uh, Peking University campus in uh, Shenzhen. So it's uh, two and a half week in Peking University campus, uh, one and a half in Chongqing, and one and a half in Shenzhen. Uh, it's becoming pretty popular. This is one of the program we run. You know, the, then um, we also we are starting like a summer program at Peking University for Chinese students uh, going uh, that are studying Italian, going to Italy to study Italian uh, culture, history, and language. Uh, it's like it's a new program it's called to Italy it's, uh, it's being uh, registered right now then we have a summer school in, uh, in Turin uh, focused on China um, it's called to China it's called to China <laughs> <laughs> very cool we started with the Belt and Road and I'd like to finish uh, I'd like to finish to, and ask you uh, about your vision of the Belt and Road your vision of the Belt and Road and of the greater Eurasian uh, region in the next five to ten years? If you would close your eyes and if you would imagine what type of a world we should live in in the next five to ten years? Okay, well... Um, Loaded question, I know. Yeah, well, no, I would say that, you know, there is a 
sort of substantial genetic contradiction between uh, historians and predictions. You know, <laughs> we tend to we tend to look to the <laughs> to the other side. Um, first of all, why I think the Belt and Road is important. Um, Belt and Road, I think, is important because for sure uh, it uh, has attract attention uh, of all over the world, especially the developing countries, towards the very much important topic of development. A topic that before was being mostly, um, uh, say, uh, was a, um, an item uh, managed mostly by United Nations uh, agendas, but it was not a strategic component, you know, in any uh, big uh, power foreign policy. And this is, I think, extremely important. The fact that development and so connected with stability, uh, as China frame it, is becoming more and more relevant, I think, in the uh, foreign policy agenda of the most player in the international system. So this is the point number one. Uh, the point number two, I mean, and this is actually that I, I look at from my own perspective as a Sicilian, Mediterranean, Italian, European, is that it's at the moment, and it's connected, of course, to no point number one, as I said before, this is, in my opinion, the smartest answer approach to the you know instability that is uh, uh, turning once again the Mediterranean into a border and impeding the Mediterranean to be what is supposed to be uh, like a, a, a space for connection and, uh, and prosperity. And, uh, and the last point, uh, I think that is also uh, a, an opportunity, uh, a genuine opportunity of, uh, match, of like matching the gap, the cultural gap that has been existing for way too long when the world was organized in, uh, uh, in uh, horizontal transatlantic relations, you know, and so this kind of... Uh, uh, um, sorry, the vertical, this kind of horizontalism that, you know, connects like the East with the West, uh, which is like the direction of the Belt and Road, uh, in my opinion, uh, is uh, creating new opportunities for, you know, uh, new, pers different perspective, you know, to meet each other and perspectives that, that were before actually very much close, but they were not talking to each other. So Asia and Europe, you know, uh, they now... I think they are getting closer and closer. The Belt and Road for sure is facilitating this process. And of course, I am uh, uh, very fond of it. Enrico Fardella, thank you for being on the Scholar on the Belt and Road podcast. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.